Welcome to With Not For, a podcast for the Centre for Inclusive Design. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you from the lands of the Camaragal people here in North Sydney, Australia. Today's episode is a little bit different. We're not talking to somebody who works as a designer or within an organisation. We have the great privilege to talk to Tyson Yunkaporta. He's the author of a book called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. In his book, Sand Talk, we see a mixture of words and symbols putting an Indigenous lens on our society, which leads us to think and talk about our presence, our connection to place, time and each other. And today's free-flowing conversation is really about how some of these ideas may or may not work in organisations and in everyday life. Welcome, Tyson. Hey, Manisha. Before we get into the book, what motivated you to write Sand Talk? Uh, just like, um, well, I crashed my car and I didn't have a car. <laughs> and that gave you um, the was, time and space. I was broke and I know somebody read something I'd written in The Guardian, a publisher, and said, you know, write me a book. I'm actually really interested in the process that you went through as well in terms of um, listening to stories, mm. creating artefacts, and then putting, I guess, squiggly lines on a page um, and that process that you went through because it seems to me that it's almost like the opposite of the process that we use in organisations where we start with the squiggly lines on a page, mm. then we talk to people or we decide on what we're going to design or create and then we talk to people to confirm that. Yeah. Oh, look, you know, everyone talks about consultation and, you know, evidence-based decision-making <laughs> Um, you know, all these sorts of things and, you know, being contextual in their design methods and all that sort of thing. But it, um, it usually doesn't happen that way. You know, but for us, everything begins in relation, you know, in law and relation, and you have to, uh, take care of the relational obligations first. And so, you know, basically it's just, you know, a lifetime of relationships and, um, a couple of decades of stories that come through that relationships, um, and I'm really you know, and then a couple of a couple of years of carving some of those things into objects because, you know, you keep uh, you you keep this knowledge, you know, from landscapes of meaning. You know, they're in places and in relations with people, but you can you can put that into objects and have portable landscapes of meaning. You know, that you can carry with you, and so you know, a couple of years carving those objects for some of those stories and yarns. And sitting with those and analyzing the world around me, like through that lens and just some interesting complex problems, um, you know, finding some metaphors in, you know, in the world, like things like complexity science, you know, and sort of half ass and that and like using some of that language to help <laughs> translate some of the ideas right. and then just spending a couple of weeks writing those things out. Um, and, and that, that was a book. I didn't know how hard it was to actually be a, uh, an author, you know, because like, I wrote that really quickly. Right. Um, but this this next one coming out this year, it's um, it took me a couple of years. Congratulations! It was really, really hard. because yeah. <laughs> I actually did it properly and you know fact checked <laughs> and decided to try and take some responsibility for what I was writing instead of dashing something out to get five grand for a new car. So I'm really interested in this idea that with the new book you fact-checked a lot more and, you know, the I guess the – it's 
I don't know how to say this, but it's this idea that the first time around, it seems to me that you went through an incredibly um, thorough process because you spoke, you created, Mm. but it was just a different process to the process Mm. that we would normally engage in when we're thinking about writing a book that's, I guess, got academic legs to it. Yeah. Well, it was was culturally rigorous. Yes. You know, in terms of that, on that side, there's a couple of decades of work there. Right. You know, in a lifetime of relationships. So it, it was rigorous culturally. Right. Um, but it was unrigorous in other ways. So how I applied that culture as a lens, you know, to the world, mm-hmm. you know, I was sitting strongly within our law and within our protocols, you know, of making embassy with other people and being respectful of other people's stories. But at the same time, without a complete understanding of the way narratives have been weaponized in the right. world and of the way like uh, conversations slash debates slash just asking questions kind of <laughs> situations are, um, you know, disingenuous. And, you know, like, I don't know, so I talk up, you know, like I exhort people in, in Sand Talk from my naive perspective at the time of uh you know to to talk to everybody and listen closely and learn you know no matter whether you disagree with them or not and i gave the example of talking to flat earthers right and i talked about how productive that was for both of us that's right but um yeah i hadn't been doing that long enough at the time when i wrote sand talk because you know after a few more months of talking to such people online then i find out what they're really talking about you know, right. Um, okay. Which you know, the flat Earth is just a vehicle for opening people up for being able to receive other messages about eugenics, about uh, you know, just asking questions about regional IQ scores and differences and what this must mean for um, you know, governance and uh, um, really misogynistic, horrendous things about well, just asking questions about well, should women really be voting? You know, right. they have all these biological limitations. Hey, there are no female chess grandmasters. That's just a fact. I'm just stating the facts. You know, um, it doesn't take long before you scratch the surface and you find you've been yarning with people who haven't been bringing the real story to the table of what they're really talking about and what they're really coming from. So the next book is trying to deal with that and trying to deal with the fallout from sand talk of you know the damage that i've done in the world by talking to these people and um you know um even and and listening for so long that um you know even some of my own narratives became polluted so i mean if you look carefully at sand talk you'll see that there are um there are a few you know, weird things that come up from time to time in my analysis. Like you'll see me just edging around the idea of um, around geoengineering, which right. is kind of, you know, giving a little nod to the chemtrails conspiracy theories. You'll see me speaking favorably about Gaddafi, a bit of Gaddafi nostalgia there that was inhaled directly from Russian propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you'll see like quite a few indications in there. Um, so my... um. I know I'm talking for a long time here, <laughs> and no, apologies, but it's important. No, I think this um, is really interesting. I'll, I'll get to yeah. a more important example, the education story, the Prussian education story, as we go along. But I think this is really critical. One of the things that um, 
we grapple with a lot is constructive dialogue and this idea of um, hearing everyone's voices equally. And it worries me a lot, which is why I'm really interested in what you're saying here, because on one side, if we you know, don't break bread with people, we can't understand the world. But on the mm. other side, there seems to be... A, there's already a disparity in language, in systems, mm. in cultures, in processes. So we can't treat the world as if it's all equal and we can hear these voices equally. So yeah. what people you're saying, people are weaponizing. Hundred percent. And and so what you're things. saying now, is really if interesting. If you're somebody who's prepared mm. to um, to reconsider your position, if you're someone who's prepared to always wonder, oh, am I wrong here? You know, what do I need to change? Um, you know, which is a that's a reasonable person. And that's somebody who's walking with right story and responding to the flows of story and law, mm. you know, um, and, and moving with it. That, that's right story. That's a reasonable person. But if you are operating in a knowledge landscape where people are not following those protocols, where people are actually weaponizing those protocols back against you and against the world, then um, you're in trouble. <laughs> right. And, right. you know, it, it, most of your engagement is going to exacerbate harm in the world. You know, we need new protocols. We need new ways of moving in these information landscapes. And, you know, since I wrote Sand Talk, it was like not long after that, the pandemic pandemic hit and um, new methods of radicalization that have been brewing for a long time. Right. You know, old ones intensified, new ones were innovated, and, you know, half the world went crazy. Um, and there are a lot of radicalized people out there and a lot of, you know, bad actors who are very well funded, uh, a lot of billionaires who want to avoid paying their taxes, who are making sure there's as much chaos as possible in the world, and that the uh, institutions that are supposed to regulate the bad behavior of the worst and most powerful people, that these are hampered and people no longer trust them. So there are narratives out there that they may utilize true facts, but they're coming with wrong story. And um, a, you have to engage in a completely different way. And I actually don't have the answers for that yet. I'm, I'm not quite sure how to engage uh, with this world that's emerged recently. And, um, you know, Sand Talk was written in in a previous era <laughs> but I with very naive understandings and a lack of awareness of what was coming. But I think one of the things that you do do, and, and this conversation is bringing up for me as well, is this idea that um, what we say at one point isn't always the truth, the um, power and the right to learn from our experiences, not to be held by the experiences that we've articulated in the past, and then to continue to learn and ideate or iterate mm. from that spot that our learning isn't static mm. and our learning isn't stagnant. And I think that um, whether it's writing a book like Sand Talk and being brave enough to put it out in the world, right? mm. not knowing what may or may not come out of it, and then being brave enough to actually write something as a critique on your critique, and to continue that process is something that I think we can learn from or, f or from in businesses as well and in organisations, this idea that something might not be absolute, it might not be real, um, or it might not be the full truth or the mm. full perfection for us to take it, to bring it out, just as long mm. as we're willing to change from that perspective, mm. not well, look, hold it. 
there's the the cultural things and the law you know from uh, the old people in sand talk that remains yeah you know that's absolutely true and that'll all be true in a thousand years um my elaborations on that right you know and my way of using that as a method of inquiry and my you know uh formation of ideas and opinions and stuff like that that's the stuff that's um that the truth changes Right. It moves, it shifts as the context shifts. And you need to be able to do both. But you need to recognize when, you know, the uh, thinking that you've, you know, that you've used to elaborate on, when, when that has shifted right. or when that is no longer right for the context or that you might have been wrongheaded at the time and that it was actually coming from ego or something like that. Um, I was talking to a rabbi this morning. They they have a they have the similar thing in the Jewish tradition, and so he's telling me that they have the written Torah and the oral Torah, and the oral Torah is is where you elaborate, you know, and that's why there's so many different sects and and so much diversity in the Jewish community, and right. even like conflict and lateral violence and everything. The oral Torah is where you elaborate. That's your individual thing where you you find different story paths through the landscape of meaning but the landscape of meaning itself that's the written torah and that must always hold and balance the oral torah and that can't change the written torah that's the landscape of meaning everything's inscribed on that right from the, that's what, how they're able to keep carrying a sense of place and a map of place with them wherever they go in the world and to maintain language and culture and groundedness in our homeland is, is that that's inscribed there. They've figured out a way to make landscapes of meaning portable, <laughs> which right. is really, really going to be important to most people in the world, I think, as um, as climate crisis continues and there will be more refugees um, and everybody is going to end up having to shift I mean, from what they regard as permanent home. And and this um, is it's a bit like that anyway. You yeah. there, are, there is stuff that is that is permanent there there's solid law that will always be there and you move through that landscape and you flow with that and you can elaborate and find your own story path through um but that story path there'll be wrong turns in that and you need to be able to recognize you know what is law uh, what is culture and then what is just you know the stuff that you've uh, you know your decisions as a sovereign being that have been right wrong or otherwise and if you're not able to shift with that and you're not able to fact check yourself and critique yourself and figure out where you've gone wrong, um, then you are, you're wrong-headed and you're not in the law anymore. You're not in right story. You're in wrong story. It feels to me like a fundamental truth, you know, and, and, and a universal truth as well, whether we're talking about um, your context, um, my spiritual context, the context of the world that we live in. One of the things that interests me about this, though, is that when we talk about our work practices, the way that we behave within the um, the system that we work in, how do you see this playing out there? Oh, well, in parasitic relation is really the only way to do this. Um, see, most of us as change makers, we, we tend to try to behave like a pathogen yeah. <laughs> in yeah. the systems that we we seek to enter mm -hmm. and occupy you know we seek to make change like a pathogen we seek to um um have a narrative that we put forward that is compelling and that will recruit others 
you know, to our cause and we seek to um, inhabit and take over and sicken and change the organism that we're within, you know, and that's how we do our revolution kind right. of thing. But I, um, I keep trying to encourage people to, to understand that every, every symbiosis starts out as a parasitic relation. Every symbiosis you see in every ecosystem, every right. interrelation between different species, it starts in parasitic relation and it evolves over time. So you need to behave in your institution like a benign parasite. Um, so but, you've got your truth. So there, tell me more. You're, yeah. you're bringing your you're bringing your ways in, but your ways that will benefit in the short term the host organism, and that they will that will compel them to want to keep you around, <laughs> and not like develop a, an immune response that will end up um, you know Desantising you out of the the state of Florida <laughs> or something. You know what I mean. You know, you, you've got to, um, you've got to be a benign parasite to start with. And then gradually, uh, like a sandpaper, like, no, not sandpaper fig, like a strangler fig. If you, if anybody knows that, uh, yes. <laughs> tree, eventually, um, you know, there's still a tree there, but it's, um, it's a different tree. <laughs> I think the thing about a strangler fig, and I'm no botanist, but often the tree that the strangler fig is on is often much bigger. It's larger, it looks stronger, and this little fig sits on the side and slowly starts to create this beautiful web that changes the shape of that tree. Mm. And is beneficial to the health of that tree. That's right. The different species that it brings in, you know, it's, um, it, it helps like bring nutrients to that tree for a very, very long time. And so the tree benefits from that. And strangler is the English word because that's not really what it does. It doesn't strangle it. It nurtures it. It takes it through its natural life, life cycle. And then, you know, it, um, it inherits the structure of the previous tree and then reabsorbs and redistributes the, um, all of the nutrients and resources of that previous tree, you know, throughout the system again and allows that cycle to continue. Um, I prefer to see myself in parasitic relation. Um, in terms of, you know, resistance and, and particularly in terms of diversity and inclusion. Right. You know, I, you have to foster these, um, mycelial networks, which is, of course, you know, a popular <laughs> metaphor now, but you also have to pay attention to the arboreal, like what's in the forest canopy. Right. That's important. There is soil up there as well. And there are things happening. There is an interaction interaction always between the canopy and the ground and everything in between and um and you need to move in that it's just it's difficult in places where there's clear felling to right. figure out how you're going to bring <laughs> how you're going to reintroduce diversity in there um in our way that's with fire that's how you do it and then you you don't plant trees because you don't know where to put a tree or a human being you know, only the land knows where the trees are going to grow and where they need to grow. And so you burn, you burn that landscape and care for it. And the birds that are attracted in after the smoke clears, they drop the seeds. You know, in their droppings, they drop the right seeds in the right place. And then the right things grow back. And then you continue to care for that and burn it periodically. And eventually your forest comes back with everything in the right place. Um, it's a longer, it's a longer haul. And you need good story to do it. Right. Um, but uh, that's your way through with diversity and inclusion. It's seldom, you know, with um, 
window dressing. So what we sometimes find is the companies that do something are often vilified or called out more than the companies that do nothing. Yeah, so these corporations, you know, the ones who do, I mean, so Disney, like, token, like, pops something out, like, just a little bit. They get flogged. <laughs> mm-hmm. They end up with, like, a governor in Florida, like, um, you know, actually doing legislation to try and wipe them out, like, using the government to attack them. Because, I don't know, they had, like, like a, a vague hint of same-sex attraction in one movie <laughs> and sort of said that they don't, like, support people who are anti-trans. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, Bud Light is still getting hammered, um, you know. Right. And, the, you know, th- this happens in Australia and people are always, you know, have really reasonable arguments and reasonable just asking questions sort of things, but it's always sitting in wrong story. So you know, tell and me more about wrong story. You, you, okay, here's a sign that you're looking at wrong story: is that the person who is who is um, promoting that narrative is absolutely certain they're right. Okay. And if you talk to them six months later, they're still absolutely certain they're right, even if the facts they were using were proven to be wrong. Um, they will. They'll. They're just moving on to the next thing. And they'll refuse to answer that. So they don't do fact-checking. They don't do uh, self-correction or anything like that. Um, yeah, certainty, if someone is speaking with absolute certainty and is not questioning you know, or listening anymore, then they're, they're coming from wrong story. Wrong story is unilateral. Wrong story always has an ad- agenda. So it'll be coming from one think tank or one group um, or one person, like usually some kind of guru uh thinker that has lots of followers or something like that um yeah that's wrong story and it's usually coming from that sort of and how do narcissism kind of place can i just say the um your stories around emu make complete sense to me and i i love the way that you connect um the physical world with the stories that we all need to hear what I love about it is this idea that we don't have to live in the middle of the bush to actually connect with country, and we mm. also don't need to connect with country physically to connect with country. Yeah. So, for instance... To, to to be able to understand that law. Yeah. You know, and those yeah. the cautionary tales around the emu is cautionary tales against narcissism, and That's it right. also offers blueprints, and like strategies for how people must keep that narcissism in check within themselves, but also in their communities, uh, strategies for how to do it. It's always a team effort and it takes many different things. You look at that Tidalic story, you know, um, you know, where, where you've got this, um, it's kind of like an antitrust dreaming story. I always think of it like that, you know, that <laughs> a giant frog eating up all the waters yes. and then all the animals have to come together uh, and do these different strategies to, um, to put an end to that. Um, yeah, and I think one of the strengths there is that often when we um, hear about um, stories related to to dreaming, they're often written in a way that they're for children. There's an assumption that they are children's stories rather than mm-hmm. grown up stories. There are two different two different um, ways of looking at that, right? And making sense of that. And one is the uh, the just so story thing. Mm-hmm. The idea that these stories have been 
colonized by Rudyard Kipling, just so sort of narratives back from the age of uh, discovery and colonization. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's that. Mm -hmm. um, another way to look at it is a more strengths-based way in that, um, you know, in Aboriginal knowledge, there's different stages and levels of knowledge. So, you know, you can only receive what you're ready for, you know, um, and you can still find the law and the ways of living in the children's levels of stories. Right. And that maybe most people, you know, especially if you're putting something out in the world and you don't know who's going to be picking it up, then that story has to go out in the world at that children's level. Right. You know, and it's fine if it's a little bit, if it's changed and transformed in English a little bit, um, because the real story and that true lore is still kept um, by elders and knowledge keepers uh, to pass on and share with people who are ready to um, ready to receive it. And to receive it in different ways, I guess, as well. Yeah, and to be responsible for carrying that knowledge and applying it in the world, you know. Uh, and that's the thing. <laughs> that's, that's the trick. Um, anyway, so there's two ways of looking at that. There, there are always many ways of looking at everything, I guess. Um, like, uh, I don't know, if if, um, if my totem wasn't Brolga, I would see emu story differently. You know, and there's lots right. of emu people who you'll hear the emu story, and it's it's a it's a strong message about how to be a man who is um, who meets his obligations of nurturance as a man. So there's a whole model of masculinity that comes through Emu's story, which is about, you know, a man who is humble and a man who has a nurturing role in the community for um, for raising children because the female Emu just lays the eggs and takes off, but the man stays and sits on the eggs and hatches the chicks and raises the chicks. So there are, you know, there's good story there with that Emu one too, you know. It's not like a dichotomy of good and evil. No, but there's. I, I, I would only see the negative emu stuff because I'm a Brolga boy and, and Brolgas don't get along with emus. <laughs> but what I like about that is this idea of um, the difference between stories that are fixed, that people take with them and are unwilling to move from, and stories that are actually global because as humans, not everything is right and wrong, yeah. that there's complexity within that that yep. the truth sits between many, many different ways of knowing, mm. um, and well, some look, of which we privilege more than others. That's it. Look, if your sovereign law, if your, no, if your central law, if your big story, you know, the stuff that you carry with you, your central tenets of faith and ethics and everything else, that foundational rock of your life, if, if that... If that system of belief is not encouraging you to be a sovereign being and find your own pathway and to make mistakes and learn from them, then that's probably a cult that you're in and not uh, not a true tradition. It's probably uh, you're probably in a faith that is that has been designed to control you and you know for some pretty horrendous purposes. You know, usually uh, purposes that end in violence and um, extraction and and uh, the death of the world. <laughs> and, so, so, you know. and we're hearing about some of this at the moment, I think, and we've had some information today I was reading about um, a lot of people who've created AI talking about how AI may well lead to humans' extinction. But I think it's interesting that the people who are creating the technology are also the people who are 
who are worried about what they're creating. Look, if you're um, if you're an indigenous pattern thinker, mm. and you're keeping half an eye on that story over a number of years, uh, you'll start to see a pattern emerging. Usually, so as an indigenous analyst watching the space, you know, I believe that these. <laughs> like really obviously disingenuous panic narratives about AI destroying the <laughs> that are spun out there by people who obviously who are accelerationists and want to see the end of the <laughs> like who want to see the destruction of the system anyway and who are pretending to panic about it it's a pump and dump scheme it's seems really obvious to me and really clear um and i just um i just think it's yeah it's wrong story these are all people who have a lot of these people have really horrendous rapture ideologies like there's that sense that you know um you know a golden age can't begin a new age can't begin until everything else is burnt to ash so as someone who thinks in a way that's really different to the way that mainstream society sometimes thinks um, and feels. Uh, in our work, we call ourselves edge users or edge thinkers. How do you actually maintain your own balance? And how do you do this within mainstream organisations like the places you work in? The, the, the... Yeah, it's it's weird being an edge thinker and an edge user in 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 a landscape of edge lords. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know what I mean. That's that's most <laughs> oh, I love of them that. always edging around something horrendous. Yeah, you know, and they're always just they just they just slip out little feelers, little testers, and you see if you're going to slap it back. And it's exhausting because it's like you're constantly slapping away all these little hands that are just like whoops reaching out to pinch your bottom all day and you know eventually you're like just gonna whatever pinch my bottom <laughs> and then they pinch it and then they go up oh, there that's consent and then they come you know it's edge lords everywhere so being an edge thinker or an edge user in in an organization is a freaking exhausting process you know and you need to have your friends you need to have your allies and you need to be building these uh you know networks of support and growing that uh strangler fig in these organizations and you need to hang in there it's it's a hostile environment initially but the way that you can render it less hostile is to be bringing nutrients to the host you have to be showing that your unique thinking is actually bringing you know bringing them profit and then they'll allow your unique thinking to to exist in the organization not just your face of color on the poster or at the table or in the promotional material you know but i'm sorry you have to think like a white man while you're here and speak like a white man while you're here nah instead they're actually going hey all right this uh <laughs> wow this perspective here has just made us half a million dollars. Um, we need to nurture that. Um, it's the only way to do it, to get enough space away from the pinching little hands of the edge lords. And if you had one thing that you could change in the way that the edge lords and the corporates worked so that it would make it a little bit easier for them to hear your message, what would that be? Mm. Oh, I, I wouldn't. When people ask me about magic wands, qu wand questions like that, I always say right. like the only thing that I would do that with that magic wand would be to make it destroy itself. Okay. Any singular decision or plan that would come from me would be ultimately destructive, no matter how good the intent was. 
So I, you can't have that's not what leadership is if you have that you have butterfly effects you have knock-on effects you can't even imagine that are big horrendous ripple effects so i would not just i would not ever change one thing if so I sorry one. when i say that i don't mean necessarily i'm talking more about the mismatch so mm. more than going you need to fix this in the world it's more when you walk in that door what could they do you know it's tiring sometimes right like it's mm -hmm. tiring walking in there there's lateral violence there's all sorts of shit that happens when we walk in that yeah. door and um sometimes we were in a session yesterday and we were talking about respect and one person in the room said you know from now on if people just stop asking me what my religion means to me I'll just have that little bit more space. Yeah. Know? That or, um, and, you know, so it was a really powerful conversation actually within an organisation. Um, yeah. And we didn't talk about it. We didn't ask about it. We didn't say why or how or why can't we. Mm -hmm. We just said, yep, if that's what you want in this today, no one is going to talk about it. No one is going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Not relevant, not important. It's just important that we don't talk about it because this person has said it is destructive. Mm. So I'm thinking about it more in that personal space rather than in the systems and pattern space because, right. um, you know, as someone who is constantly having those hands yeah. come at you, um, what is something people can do or, or organisations can do to actually give you a little bit more space to fight the good, to fight the good fight, really? I don't. I don't know anybody from any tradition or ideology yeah. on the planet who doesn't raise their kids to to listen to other people and be respectful of other people yeah. around them. I don't know. I mean, the most the most conservative, repressive curriculum in a kindergarten will still teach kids to listen to each other and share and and respect the boundaries of the, that each other has. It's pretty freaking simple. I don't understand why adults don't get it, <laughs> but maybe the message is just a bit more simple. Yeah. Maybe it's just, maybe we just complicate the message too much and um, we try and put too many specific rules around it. And, you know, if you're not a millennial or a Gen Z, you can't remember all them rules and the Gen Xs and, and, and boomers <laughs> and silent silent uh, generation they 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 can't keep their head around all that sort of stuff um so i i just think you know some basic you know basic rules of interaction of like just you know waiting listening you know deeply having some empathy and feeling for what another per if another person is is um you know feeling disturbed about something you know it's it's pretty simple you just have a little bit of cultural responsiveness Absolutely. Uh, to the needs of everyone around you. you know. Thank you so much for that. Um, I did want to share, there's a great thing um, that you talked about in your book. I read the sentence, you, I don't know if you even remember it, but there was a piece in there about um, not wrestling pigs because you get shit all over you. And I mentioned yep. this to the crew this morning, and aren't you motto at work? Don't wrestle the pigs. Mm. <laughs> oh. Let's let's end on that. That's your rule going in. Listen to everybody, be polite, be culturally responsive, but never wrestle a pig because you both get covered in shit and the pig likes it. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time. 
Yeah, for sure. It's been absolutely gorgeous speaking to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of With Not For. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If you'd like to learn more about how you can make your world more inclusive, contact us on www.cfid.org.au or see the show notes. So until next time, this is Manisha Ramin for the Centre for Inclusive Design. Thank you.